Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center, and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Thursday, November 9th, 2017, I'm Nadia Caldwell. First, a news update with Tommy Durkin. New allegations of sexual misconduct are coming out today, as investigations surrounding charges against Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey continue. As Tommy Brooksbank reports, comedian Louis C.K. is the latest star. Five women have come forward today with accusations of sexual misconduct against Emmy-winning comedian and actor Louis C.K. These accusations come just as his controversial new film, I Love You Daddy, was about to open. The distribution company handling the film has canceled the premiere. The New York Times reports that the woman accused the comedian of pleasuring himself in front of them or while speaking over the phone. Some of these claims date back as far as 2002. Two publicists for Louis C.K. have declined to comment on the allegations. C.K. has canceled his scheduled appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert for tomorrow. For Annenberg Media, I'm Tommy Brooksbank. A newly released poll by USC Dornzeif and the Los Angeles Times finds that more than 50% of voters support Senator Dianne Feinstein in her bid for re-election. This is in comparison to only 38% of voters who favor opponent Kevin DeLeon. The race for governor is much tighter, with Democrats Gavin Newsom polling at 31%, Antonio Villaraigosa at 21%, and Republican Travis Allen at 15 Gentrification has become an issue all over Los Angeles, and as Kaylee Wells reports, Eagle Rock is feeling the changes as the Coffee Table Cafe prepares to shut down. On a busy corner of Colorado Boulevard in Eagle Rock is a classic breakfast and coffee joint. The coffee table has served Northeast LA residents for 20 years. That is until Sunday, when it will close its doors for the last time. I just found out about, like, 20 minutes ago, so I'm still in shock. I feel like it's all happening so quickly. That's Karen Gazellian, one of many customers who stopped by this morning for one more coffee table coffee. She's been coming for several years now, and she says Northeast LA has been gentrifying for a while, and customers like her weren't surprised to see the restaurant shut down. The area is definitely changing, just moving on to the east side now. The coffee table shares the corner with three other restaurants, so there's no shortage of places to eat. Customer Mazier Golastanazada says businesses all over this part of town are making way for poke and boba restaurants. This last year I've noticed like a wave of gentrification sort of coming on um, and it seems to stick. Eagle Rock and Northeast LA have been called the poster children of gentrification, pushing out lower income residents and minority culture, a sort of reversal of white flight. And for businesses like the coffee table, that also means a chase to keep up with rising rents. I was actually hired um, before the walls were even up in this place. That's Michael Blanchard, an employee at the coffee table. He says he worked at another location in Silver Lake and only came here in 2011 when that store was also forced to close. Uh, so this is actually my second time the owner has told me that the restaurant's closing. <laughs> so. He says sales have been down now that there are so many restaurants in town, but the biggest problem was the ever-increasing cost just to keep the doors open. The landlord has been raising the rents uh, consistently over the last... Uh, well, I think every year pretty much it goes up um, because he knows he can get it. Blanchard thinks the coffee table could have stayed if the landlord didn't raise the rent so high so fast. The restaurant will close on Sunday, but he says if it's anything like the rest of town, the storefront won't be empty for long. For Annenberg Media, I'm Kaylee Wells.
Today, we'll have a high of 71, with temperatures tonight dropping to a low of 58. Tomorrow will be partly cloudy, with a high of 69. As we move into the weekend, temperatures will remain in the low 70s, with scattered clouds. President Donald Trump is visiting China. He intends to press China on trade and North Korea. Draco Guan has reaction from Chinese students at USC about the president's trip. President Donald Trump continued his visit in China today. He tried to flatter Chinese President Xi Jinping into establishing a more balanced trade relationship and doing more to blunt North Korea's nuclear ambitions. I don't blame China. In his speech, Trump did not blame China for what he calls the unfair trade relationship between the countries, despite long railing against the economic imbalance. After all, who can blame a country for being able to take advantage of another country for the benefit of its citizens? I give China great credit. USC students from China are following news of the president's visit. I spoke to some students earlier today. Yeah, it's very rational for him to actually say that, but I don't 100% trust him. After he comes to China, I think maybe he will provide more trade opportunities for Chinese people to work in, in the U.S. I think his trip to China is kind of funny because he has just said a lot of things that are not very good to China. President and First Lady Melania Trump attended a state dinner at the Great Hall of the People, where he showed a video of his granddaughter singing a traditional Chinese song in Mandarin. For Annenberg Media, I'm Draco Guan. Veterans Day is this Saturday, November 11th. USC has a long-standing relationship with the armed forces, with veterans' employment programs and resources for students and alumni. Eva Macha has more. U.S. News and World Report placed USC at number five on its 2017 Best Colleges for Veterans national ranking. However, the university and many other private colleges across the nation will still be in session tomorrow, Friday the 10th. Trojan vets hanging out at the SC Campus Veterans Resource Center had varying opinions on how they prefer to be honored this weekend. Me personally, I don't want to be honored. Um, I, have, I never did it really for any specific recognition. That was Matthew Hem, another vet. Martin Ariola says he appreciates many of the free meals and services that local businesses provide, but he doesn't think it's enough. To me, that doesn't hold very much value compared to a day off in, you know, to honor those that did serve. All public universities will be closed tomorrow to commemorate the holiday. For Annenberg Radio News, this has been Ava Macha. It's seven minutes after the hour. I'm Tommy Durkin. Thanks, Tommy. Coming up on From Where We Are, you've heard it mentioned in the headlines. Now we break down the Paradise Papers. Tuesday's election was good for Democrats in Virginia. And it was also a good day for the transgender community. As Devon McRae reports, Danica Rome was elected to the state legislator. Tuesday was a victorious one for the transgender community when Danica Rome, an openly transgender woman, 
was elected to a seat in the Virginia House of Delegates. This makes her the first openly trans woman to be elected as a lawmaker. She was so open about it, in fact, she even included it in her campaign. This is just who I am. There are millions of transgender people in this country, and we all deserve representation. To top it all off, her opponent, Robert G. Marshall, was a conservative Republican that authored a bill that would block trans people from using their preferred bathrooms. So that win is a definitely a in-your-face. That was Queen Victoria Ortega, co-chair of Flux, a non-profit organization that aims to raise the profile of the trans and gender non-conforming community. To see us step into the policy realm, which is really where you get to leverage power, um, is a very happy day for me. Trans folks have faced a lot of political issues within the last year, such as President Trump's transgender military ban. But these issues may have helped Rome win. I think the uh, election of Trump really woke a lot of people up uh, as to what needs to be done. Um, There's still, of course, much more to be done. Michael Gorse, the supervisor of the LGBT Center at USC, explained that there are still many states that offer no job protection for those within the trans community, meaning... Trans people and gender nonconforming people can still be fired simply based on their gender identity. Which is pretty scary, but... The public is being um, more accepting of trans and gender nonconforming people and now actually are, you know, seeing them as potential leaders in our political arena. So this isn't a sign of complete equality, but Ortega sums it up perfectly. America as it is, is continually evolving and changing and I would dare say it's transforming. This election has to prove nationwide that discrimination is a disqualifier. For Annenberg Media, I'm Devon McRae. Palm Springs also made history on voting day, electing Lisa Middleton, the city's first openly trans city councilwoman. Also elected on Tuesday was Christy Holstege, who identifies as bisexual. That makes the entire Palm Springs City Council LGBTQ. We spoke with Palm Springs Mayor Robert Moon to get his reaction. The city of Palm Springs is very supportive. So, you know, nobody cares that they're transgender, but what we do care about is we want to make sure that they have support and they have uh, an infrastructure that they can rely upon to make them feel comfortable because we don't want any of our young people, because they're transgender or gay or whatever, to harm themselves or to have serious psychological or physical issues because mm-hmm. of their sexual orientation. That's what we care about, is yeah. taking care of our young people and helping them through that difficult time that all young people have. Middleton finished first out of a field of six candidates in the city council race. Twitter will give users a little more space to have their say. The company announced on Tuesday it will double the character count in tweets from 140 characters to 280. That's been met with a mix of reactions. Annenberg Media's Margie Fang has the story. When it first announced the plan to double the number of characters in the tweet back in September, Twitter claimed it would enable users to express themselves more. The company claims that those who have more room to tweet receive more likes retweets, and app mentions, gain more followers, and spend more time on Twitter. But not everyone is convinced. I don't know what to do with myself. Like, I can be lazy and just have lots of extra words that don't need to be there. Twitter's not really for writing essays. That's Nathan Wallace and Cindy Norris, two USC students and Twitter users. But it's not just everyday users who are affected by the change. Many journalists use the microblogging platform in their work are affected as well. So it really, it really changes the game in Twitter. But he says 
Journalists should still try to keep their messages as simple as possible. I think any good journalist will appreciate the phrase, "Don't use, you know, 280 characters when you only need 140." Um, you know, less is always more. This week marks four years since Twitter shares first went public. Since then, the company has faced criticism for failing to grow its user base. Dr. Carrie North, the director of digital social media at the Edinburgh School of Communication, says this latest shift is part of an attempt by Twitter to attract new users, and she says that's a mistake. People should think to themselves about how newsworthy, notable quotes are on Twitter. And Twitter should embrace that and try to figure out how to enhance that aspect of their platform, rather than trying to accommodate people who are really not their users,、mm-hmm. at all. Twitter did not respond to request or tweet for comment. For Annenberg Media, I am Margie Fang. In this week's International Current. Ryan Thompson breaks down the confidential documents on offshore investments that make up the Paradise Papers. A scandal is taking the globe by storm this week, and really, I mean the globe. No continent is immune from this. Welcome to the International Current. Today, the Paradise Papers, a global investigation that reveals a complex network of tax avoidance and tax evasion by public figures and major companies around the world. Who are the major players? How did this all go down? And why should you care? I'm Ryan Thompson. If you've read any newspaper from outside the United States this week, you've heard about a little investigation known as the Paradise Papers. It's been the cover story for Le Monde and the Guardian every single day. It's the successor to the Panama Papers and basically reveals how common offshore banking is. In other words, putting money in tax havens like the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, and the Bahamas. But what's striking is that these aren't CEOs and finance executives that you've never heard of before. Named in the investigations are public figures and major corporations, everyone from Prince Charles to the president of Liberia and even Shakira. U.S. corporations like Apple, Nike, and Facebook also turned up in the documents. In total, 95 media organizations released stories about the trove of documents, all thanks to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, who coordinated the release and sharing of the documents between media organizations. Joining me to discuss further is Will Fitzgibbon. He's a reporter on staff at the ICIJ. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Good to be here. So, for someone who's not familiar with the ICIJ or your work on the Panama Papers, what are the Paradise Papers, and why should we care? The Paradise Papers refer to nearly 14 million documents that were leaked to journalists, and those documents come from companies that specialize in creating accounts or companies. Offshore, and what that means is that these are companies and money that's basically moved into tax havens. People might think of British Virgin Islands or Panama, and often these companies are used in ways that can avoid tax, can evade tax, which is illegal, or even at the more extreme end of things, can be used by corrupt politicians or even drug traffickers to hide money. So what is striking about the 13.5 million documents is that there are companies and individuals whose secret financial dealings are revealed from nearly every country and certainly from every continent except Antarctica. And here in the U.S., we heard about the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross being named in the papers, as well as those three major U.S. corporations, Nike, Apple, and Facebook. 
But these leaks are truly global. And you've pointed out that tax havens can be particularly problematic for countries in Africa who already have a weak tax base. Absolutely. No country is spared from tax avoidance, which is legal but controversial, and tax evasion, which is illegal. And that's why this is such an important issue. And certainly it's a big deal from America because the American government loses billions of dollars from tax avoidance each year. But in some ways, experts say it's even more important in developing countries, especially poorer countries in Africa, for example, because as a portion of their gross domestic product or their economy, taxes that should be paid by companies are more important, which means that when those companies don't pay taxes or succeed by using the offshore system in paying less in tax, there's a much bigger impact on those countries. And ultimately, what does that mean? It means that certain countries might have less to spend on their healthcare budget, might have less money to spend on building new schools or paying teachers than they would if these companies and if these people had simply paid the tax rates that, by law, they're required to. Lastly, just to understand the investigation and putting this together, it sounds like a complicated process. I mean, working with 381 journalists, 95 media organizations. Could you talk a little about the work behind the investigation? So I'm a journalist with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and that means I'm both a journalist but also work as part of this small team that has a mission to bring journalists together on large international investigations. In this particular case with Paradise Papers, We know journalists who work at a German newspaper, and they first received from a source these 13.5 million documents. The German reporters then came to ICIJ and said, look, there's so much data here, there's so much information, we can't do it alone. Help us build a team of reporters from 60, 70 countries. Because, like you were saying before, each country has its own story, and a story that matters to an audience in the United States or a story that matters to an audience in France is not going to be the same story that's important in Argentina. So over a year, we selected and worked with uh, nearly 400 journalists from about 67 countries who all had access via secure online platforms that computer engineers build for us, and they can search through the millions of files to find leads to stories that are important to them. Will Fitzgibbon, thank you for your insight. Thank you. To check out some of the English language reporting from the Paradise Papers, look to the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Washington Post. Links to those stories are on our website, uscannenbergmedia.com. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ryan Thompson. A former USC professor is one of the many individuals responsible for your ability to experience the wonders of color television. Julia Gibson has the story. Today, I invented color TV, I think. These are the words of a fellow Trojan that meant to modernize the television-watching experience for Americans and transition their lives from gray to color. Color television was first introduced in the mid-1960s and continues to evolve. Studies increasingly reveal the psychological impact of color TV. Because clearly the intuitive response would be that um, you know, it's more vibrant, it's more lifelike, it, it creates stronger emotional uh, resonance in, in you and so on. That's David Bushman. He's a curator at the Paley Center for Media in New York City. So who contributed to giving us this strong emotional resonance? 
it was former USC assistant professor of physics, Willard Gear. After surviving a diabetic coma, Dr. Gear developed a systemic infection that affected his heart. This put the Gear family through a financial strain, according to a 1975 TV Guide article written by Gear's wife, Mary. In an effort to keep his spirits up and his mind at work, Mary looked over at her husband one night and said, In your physics classes, you're always giving away million-dollar ideas for improving the world. Let's dream up a dilly and get ourselves a patent. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. What they came up with was a single-tube cathode ray that used a pattern of phosphor-colored three-sided pyramids. These pyramids would mix red, green, and blue signals from three electron guns within the tube's faceplate. The patent sold the Technicolor, but unfortunately, experts deemed that Gear's tube contained too many technical difficulties, so it was never commercially used. So, what happened to the history of the Gear tube, and what happened to Willard Gear? The Paley Center's David Bushman has a hunch. You know, I've taught like media classes, history of media classes, and um, you know, it's just a name that, for the most part, has been sort of lost to history, unfortunately. Willard Gear passed away in 1975. Researching this story, we reached out to the physics department at USC and received nothing more than a short magazine clip of notable tech alumni in the university. Articles are scarce and archives are limited. Willard Gear and his cathode ray tube might be buried in history, but the beloved professor will always be remembered as a Trojan who went above and beyond to make his dreams come true. For USC Annenberg Media, I'm Julia Gibson. We own color TV. We'll see all the color shows now. By Leslie Ambrose, Maraguo, and Natalie Kiamonquan. While it's usually sunny in Southern California, some students are concerned the university isn't properly utilizing it. The Go Solar rally has taken place for several years, with students calling on USC to add solar power to campus. Annenberg Media's Chris Perfett has the story. No problem. Have a good day. Hi, can I talk to you about energy at USC? Holding signs that said, Clean Energy Now and My Education Shouldn't Kill the Environment, a handful of student activists gathered besides Tommy Trojan on Wednesday. Organizers say they want to move USC to endorse more uses of renewable sources of energy. Tanya Shaw-Wakefield of Environmental Corps, a campus environmental organization, says as a research institution, universities should put environmentalism at the heart of what it does. We disagree with that statement because the whole reason we are environmentalists, the whole reason we do all this work is for future-oriented things, which is what research is for as well. So the two are intrinsically tied. USC's Director of Administrative Operations told Annenberg Media that solar isn't financially feasible right now. Currently, USC does not have any solar panels at its University Park campus. Among the students who came out for the Go Solar Rally was Tristan Bridge. I think it's disappointing that our university isn't doing much of anything to implement solar or any alternative energies onto their campus. As a student here, um, I feel like my voice isn't really being heard. Other California universities have already adopted solar technology. Both California Berkeley and Loyola Marymount have solar panels on campus, which produce roughly 1.3 million kilowatt hours each year through combined use of rooftop panels, carport solar arrays, and solar umbrellas for students to recharge their personal devices. One kilowatt hour is good enough to watch television for 10 hours, wash 12 pounds of laundry, or vacuum for an hour. UC San Diego's David Weil, a director of campus sustainability, 
says there are challenges for some universities to make the switch to solar, like old electrical systems. But he believes there is an obligation for campuses to lead the way on renewable energy. You want to be a leader and show, you know, your, your students, you want to show the community, you know, what is the right thing to do? You know, we're saying climate change is here. Well, the colleges and the universities should be doing something to help show that they're good citizens and uh, be examples. The University of California has pledged to become carbon neutral by 2025. Come on, guys. Okay, it's, ready? It's time, time to be neutral. neutral. Let's go, go carbon neutral. <laughs> For Annenberg Media, I'm Chris Perfett. College sports are not only demanding on the body, but on the mind, too. Megan Coyle investigates why mental illness is so prevalent among college athletes. If you really think about it, sports don't make much sense. I realize this as I'm sitting on the pool deck at the Lions Center with former USC swimmer Lindsay Lauder. Here's how she describes her sport. You kill yourself every day to get to a race and prove that you're like two milliseconds like two millihundredths of a second faster than you were three weeks ago. Like, it's absurd. Um, and yet, like, so satisfying. Now take that absurdity and combine it with 20 hours a week of practice and a full course load of college classes. Yeah, that's college athletics in a nutshell. Your sport becomes such a large part of your identity, whether you want it to or not. And so I think that that's why it becomes so tied up in mental health is because being an athlete is such a defining part of who you are. Lauder was diagnosed with anxiety and depression after she was forced to quit swimming because of a shoulder injury. She was in denial for months, thinking she was just restless or bored. But then she started doing poorly in school and partying a lot. Um, and one day I was walking to school and I was like, repeatedly asking myself the same questions the doctor had asked me over summer. What were those questions? It was like, are you struggling with schoolwork? Like, do you feel unmotivated? Do you not want to get out of bed in the morning? Um, I kind of had this realization of, holy shit, if I continue doing what I'm doing, I'm literally going to fail out of all of my classes and, like, just continue drinking and, like, partying until I fail out of school. And this is coming from a college athlete with a 4.0 GPA in her first two years of college. Potter is one of many student-athletes struggling with mental illness. A 2015 survey of NCAA athletes says that between 25 to 36 percent of Division I college athletes report feeling overwhelmed. USC volleyball player Victoria Garrick found even more striking results in a survey she conducted with 100 college volleyball players. And 70 percent of athletes have felt depressed in the last five months, and that's at schools like Stanford, Oregon, Washington State, Loyola. UCLA, so it's everywhere. What most people don't understand is that athletes have to be 100% present at every class and every practice, unlike regular students who can skip when they want. I can't show up to practice and just get by. You have to show up and you have to play well. You have to be loud. You have to be there for your teammates. I asked Garrick to describe a typical day for her, and it's exhausting just listening to it. So I have from one to six locked off for practice that whether that's showering eating watching film being with the team playing volleyball that time is for for my sport so when you're making your schedule on like the NCAA is currently considering new regulations that could give students more autonomy over their schedules and limit the time commitment my name is Dr. Lonnie Lawrence I'm a sports psychologist here at USC the first thing I notice when I go visit Dr. Lawrence is that she's more than six feet tall 
Her height gives away her past basketball career, in college and overseas. She says about half of USC student-athletes utilize the school's counseling services. There's a lot more pressure, which exacerbates maybe the mental health issues that they're experiencing, right? If you're an athlete, I think they're supposed to only, you know, be practicing 20 hours a week, but then you have film, they have homework, um, they have maybe extra sessions that they're doing on their own. And so those hours really pile up and they don't really have a lot of time or space to really manage or cope with their emotions. During the fall, she will see up to 30 athletes a week. But in terms of universities and colleges utilizing sports psychology, that's really only really started during the past 10 years. And USC is pretty unique because we have three full-time sports psychologists on staff. Lauder says USC highly recommends that their athletes seek out counseling. There's like no stigma around it. Like you see other athletes in the waiting room, and you're like, hey, you're here to bitch about your coach. And they're like, yeah, so are you. And I'm like, yeah. Garrick's teammates and coaches were also very supportive when she was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. She now gets free therapy and medication at USC, and she's still able to have moments like these. When I was a freshman, um, we were the number one team in the nation, and I served the game-winning ace when we played UCLA in the conference opener. And from Victoria Garrick, the freshman, gets an ace on her rival's home court. Lauder, on the other hand, hasn't swam in more than a year. She sometimes wonders what her life would have been like if she hadn't gotten injured. Would she still be on antidepressants right now, sitting by the edge of the pool? You're asking your body to do something it wasn't designed for. And so when you're constantly pushing those boundaries of what you're physically able to do, what you're mentally able to do, your mental fortitude, it's so much harder to acknowledge that you're not okay. She says she still hopes to get back in the pool one day, when swimming won't be such a hard thing to wrap her mind around. For Annenberg Media, I'm Megan Coyle. That's it for From Where We Are Today. I'm Nadia Caldwell. 